Live from Atlanta, it's Dist, a Supreme Court podcast. Hi, dissidents. We're dropping in with a bonus episode this week. Please enjoy a live Supreme Court preview. I'm joined this morning by Casey Maddox. He's the Vice President for Legal and Judicial Strategy at Americans for Prosperity. He's also Twitter's resident commissioner of Christmas Music Disputes. Uh, Clark Neely is Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute and also the king of killing qualified immunity. Last but not least, my dist co-host, Anastasia Bowden. She's a self-proclaimed Anthony Kennedy superfan and a senior attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation. So Anastasia, let's start with you. The long-suffering Sacketts are back at SCOTUS 10 years after their first trip when they won a unanimous case against the EPA. So tell us about Sackett versus EPA. Yeah, well, we thought it appropriate to talk about the first case of the term first. It's also the first case that's going to be heard by new Justice Kentanji Brown-Jackson. It's the first time in a long time the court will be hearing arguments in person. But it's not the first time that this case is being heard or argued by our colleague, Damian Schiff. This, as Elizabeth alluded to, the Sacketts filed this case in 2008. So think back to what you were doing in 2008. That's a long time ago, uh, a decade and a half ago, and they still haven't gotten an answer on the scope of their rights. So the wheels of justice grind slowly. But way back when, uh, the Sacketts were trying to build their dream home. They bought a parcel, they secured the necessary local permits, and they broke ground. But they were told not so fast by the EPA, who informed them that they needed to secure a Clean Water Act permit before they could proceed. And they needed to clean off any of the uh, clearing they had already done. They needed to refill the holes and whatnot, or they were going to face potential fines of over $10,000 a day. So the first dispute uh, that arose was whether the EPA could even designate their land as a wetlands, because this was all a great surprise to the Sacketts. Their lot contains no streams, no oceans, no rivers, no lakes, nothing you might traditionally consider a navigable water, and it lacked any continuous surface connection to such a body of water. So they didn't think the agency had jurisdiction. So they wanted to sue and say, this isn't a wetlands, but EPA came back and said, no, you can't sue right now. You have to wait until we actually levy fines and go after you for this compliance order. So you just sit there and you can either continue developing, racking up fines, and wait until we actually go after you for those fines, and then you can challenge it, or you can just put your property back into place, like we say. So thinking that that wasn't very fair, we pressed this issue all the way up to the Supreme Court, where the court ruled in a 9-0 decision that, in fact, this was uh, extremely unfair and challengeable. So that was the first trip to the Supreme Court, second one. The case got remanded. Now we actually get to figure out if their property is a wetlands, and we're back at the Supreme Court. So you might wonder how in the heck the EPA thinks it has jurisdiction over this property when there is no uh, apparent body of water on the property. And it all comes back to the Clean Water Act. This was an act that was passed in 1972, and it regulates the discharge of pollutants into navigable waters, and it's been interpreted by agencies very broadly. So to take one example, you might think that a pollutant is something like a toxic substance, that this is what they're trying to get after, is is getting toxic substance out of uh, big bodies of water. But actually, the EPA has said that even dirt can qualify as a pollutant that allows it to regulate. In fact, just warming the water 
can qualify as uh, polluting the water and giving it jurisdiction over your property. And when it comes to navigable water, that term has been interpreted quite broadly as well. In fact, over the years, the agency has said that it extends to the full extent of Congress's commerce power, which, as you may know, has been interpreted quite broadly. So at one point, the agency said that it could navigate a, a body of water that arose, a, a puddle essentially, if it was a stop that a migratory bird stopped at when it was migrating across states. That, that alone would give EPA jurisdiction over that puddle of water. So this gives EPA a lot of power, and uh, the real scope of the act has vexed courts for a long time. And while I love Justice Kennedy, he did issue an opinion that was not really so clear on uh, the scope of EPA's authority. <laughs> Imagine that. Clear right? as mud. <laughs> not so clear by Justice Kennedy. Beautiful, but not so clear. This has been litigated again and again, and now the Sacketts will finally, we hope, get some finality as to what the scope of EPA's jurisdiction is. So PLF has another case this term, two in one term for one organization. It's a pretty big deal. I'm also dealing with government overreach on private property. Do you want to briefly mention that one? Yeah, and also dealing with jurisdiction because as anybody uh, familiar with public interest law will find out that when you sue the government, they will do anything to keep you out of court and uh, getting a say on what your rights are. So this case, too, has some jurisdictional components, or maybe not, well, you'll see the, the dispute. But our clients, Will Wilkins and his neighbor across the street, they live across from each other on this road that goes to a forest. And the previous owners of this property granted uh, the Forest Service an easement over that property, that is, gave them access to that property, just the Forest Service, to allow the Forest Service to go harvest timber out of the forest. Well, in 2006, the Forest Service decided it was going to put up a sign that said public access. So it declared public access to this road, which has been quite problematic for our clients. It's increased traffic. There's fire threats. Uh, one of our clients suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder because he was in the military, and the noise is very harrowing to him. In fact, there was some violence against his cat, I heard, from some of the people going through. And so they wanted to challenge this, uh, essentially, taking of their property, just deeming it unilaterally now public property, even though it's not. And so they went to court, and the Forest Service argued that the statute of limitations had run. And we were dismissed on that basis, and now there's a dispute about whether the statute of limitations is jurisdictional and gets you kicked out of court, or whether it's a case management issue that we can still get discovery and still have a little bit of a fight in court about whether our client's rights should be heard. So that's our second case and a good lesson. I mean, I think having the two of us up here, Clark and I, next to each other, um, two people who have sued the government and spent a good deal of their time arguing about jurisdiction, will give you guys a good idea that a lot of litigation is not just those exciting civil rights arguments. It's a lot about fighting with the government, just that you should have a day in court. So friends in the back, feel free to come on in. There's seats right in the front row that we saved for you. Uh, so turning to Clark, uh, the next case involves pork, economic protectionism, and the dormant commerce clause. Tell us about it. Right, so we move from the sweet mystery of dirt to the even sweeter mystery of pork. For those of you who don't have these facts uh, and figures at your fingertips, you may want to keep in mind that the national market for pork is $26 billion a year. That's 125 million hogs. Do the math there. There's like 365 million people who live in the U.S., a good chunk of whom are kids. Uh, so that's like one pig for, all, for three of us. I don't know that I'm pulling my weight on that front. But um, California and its I infinite... I got you, man. Okay. <laughs> I should have known. Yeah. So California, as it is wont to do, has decided 
that it has um, a sufficient level of moral clarity about the way that hogs should be raised that it promulgated this Proposition 12 that dictates the conditions in which hogs uh, should be confined uh, before being uh, slaughtered for production. And the problem, basically, is that only 0.13% of all pork production occurs in California. The rest of it occurs outside of California. But as alleged in the complaint that was brought by the National Pork Producers Association, the effect of this California law is going to be uh, national, in effect, um, because of the way that the pork distribution market works. It's really not feasible to sort of segregate out and essentially have California-compliant hogs. And the requirements basically uh, deal with things like the size of a cage, whether you can have uh, one hog or more in a, in a pen, um, whether they have to be able to turn around, things like that. I don't know a great deal about pork husbandry. Some of you probably do. Uh, but there's a real dispute, apparently, about whether these laws are actually humane or whether they uh, make uh, things actually worse for pigs. We'll leave all that to one side. The real point of the case is that one state, in this case California, is attempting uh, to, in effect, impose a national standard on the way that pigs are kept uh, and raised for slaughter. And uh, as alleged again in the complaint, and the case was dismissed at the pleading stage, so we have to credit the, the, the allegations in the complaint. And I would say the complaint alleges plausibly that there really isn't any way for out-of-state pork producers to avoid complying with the California regulations, because they have really, again, no way of preventing um, or knowing whether the pigs that they're raising are going to end up in California, so they need to err on the side of caution. And again, as alleged in the complaint, there's an estimate that this will increase cost to the consumer uh, of pork products by about 10%, so not an inconsequential amount, uh, when you, especially when you add that to inflation. I guess that's 20% or more, um, and that's a pretty big hit. So. It, the, the legal issue uh, boils down to this question of whether the so-called dormant commerce clause, uh, this you know, sort of uh, judicially invented uh, requirement that states, in effect, not legislate in a way that has discriminatory or extraterritorial effects is violated in this case. Most of you probably know, if you've been following the Supreme Court in this area, that it has a very ambivalent relationship with the commerce clause. At one end of the spectrum, you've got state laws that are overtly uh, discriminatory. An example would be a case that the Institute for Justice was litigating when I joined there in 2000, where states were essentially trying to favor domestic wine production. Believe it or not, every state, I think with the exception of Hawaii and Alaska, has a domestic wine industry. And they were trying to promote it by, or many states were trying to promote their own industry by allowing the direct shipment of wine produced by in-state uh, wineries to consumers, but requiring all out-of-state wines to come through this so-called three-tiered system, starting with wholesalers, retailers, and distributors. Um, sorry, wholesalers, distributors, retailers. That would be a classic example of a discriminatory state law that is per se unconstitutional under the Dormant Commerce Clause. Where things get more challenging is where you move away from these overtly discriminatory efforts to favor local business and local commerce to things like what we see in California, which I think as PLF's amicus brief nicely characterized, is really basically a moral crusade. About seven million California voters decided that they have strong feelings about the way that pigs should be raised, even though very few of them are actually raised in California. They passed a law saying it has to be this way. And they've essentially imposed this moral vision, or they've attempted to impose this moral vision on the rest of the country. Um, I think this is a really close call, because on the one hand, uh, I think that it's very clear that the justices, including the sort of the more conservative wing of the court, has been expressing increased skepticism about the legitimacy of the Dormant Commerce Clause at all, 
Uh, and certainly the, the version of the Dormant Commerce Clause that really doesn't have anything to do with economic protectionism, uh, but is more about uh, efforts by states to in, enforce laws that have extraterritorial effects uh, like this one. Um, on the other hand, I, it's just, I mean, think about what's going to happen um, if states have sort of unfettered ability to pass these kinds of laws. I think in the, um, I believe it was a response brief of the producers at, at some point in litigation or the briefing, they said, you know, this is just going to invite this kind of tit for tat back and forth. So you could imagine Texas, for example, saying, okay, fine. Any movie that ends up being shown in the state of Texas has to have at least 10% Chuck Norris in it and no Matthew McConaughey. So that's just, that's just how we feel about that, right? And uh, where does it end, right? So that's a practical question that I think is uh, not uh, inconsequential in this case. And I guess now I'll just editorialize for 30 seconds and say a lot of this wouldn't even come up. We wouldn't have such a fraught uh, challenge about, um, you know, is there even such a thing as the Dormant Commerce Clause if the Supreme Court had not closed the door, in effect, on just bringing uh, a straight up due process or privileges or immunities challenge to state laws that don't make any sense. So if you're the pork producers in, you know, sort of a, and sorry, block yours if you're sensitive, in a Lochner world where you can actually challenge uh, laws that don't make any sense and get meaningful judicial review, you wouldn't need to invoke the, invoke the Dormant Commerce Clause in this case. You would just make a straight up privileges or immunities um, or substantive due process argument and say, look, we're in the business of selling pork. We need to be able to you know, do that on equal terms with other producers of products or the whole thing will shut down. Um, and this is an irrational law because, first of all, it doesn't actually achieve the objectives that it says it's supposed to. And, and the, the stated factual bases are, are, are almost entirely fictional. So that's all we need is meaningful judicial review. We don't even need to invoke the Dormant Commerce Clause. Um, that is a hypothetical fantasy world in which the Supreme Court does its job even in the economic sphere, so that we're not there yet. We're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for now, if you find yourself in this position, you have to invoke the Dormant Commerce Clause, and the Supreme Court really is, as I said, increasingly un disinclined to, to imply the Dormant Commerce Clause. I think this is about as close as uh, a case on the docket as I, as I a high-profile case on this year's docket to a close, as a, to a toss-up as, I, as, I uh, as I'm aware of. So um, I wouldn't bet on this one. I think it's interesting. I looked at uh, who filed amicus briefs, and 26 states filed for yep. the challenger. There, were, there was a smaller group that filed uh, supporting California, but the Biden administration also uh, is supporting the challenger. So this is a, a bipartisan effort uh, against California. Um, okay, so Casey, over to you. We have yet another case about whether a state non-discrimination law trumps free speech. It's not about the florist, the baker, the candlestick maker this time. It's website designing. So tell us about 303 Creative. Yeah, so 303 Creative is, is uh, at least at this point, the biggest free speech case on the, on the court's docket, the one that very likely you'll be waiting sometime in June for the decision, along with probably uh, maybe not Sackett. You get argued early. so. But this is going to be one of the big cases you're, you're probably waiting on in, in June. They haven't set oral argument yet for 303 Creative, so probably coming in December is, would be my speculation. But this is uh, the, the latest in the saga of the uh, Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. The same uh, state law that's at issue with the Jack Phillips cases, Masterpiece Cake Shop. And so this is a, a slightly... Uh, or a variation on it, though, because this is a website designer. Um, Lori Smith uh, owns 303 Creative. She creates custom websites. Among the things that she does custom websites for are wedding websites. So people are getting married, and for those of you who are my age or older, this is a thing. You create a custom website for your wedding. So 
So she's, uh, she does custom websites for weddings. Uh, she doesn't agree with same-sex marriage, and so she doesn't uh, or proposes to not do uh, custom websites for same-sex weddings in Colorado. You can already see the conflict here. Uh, the, the difference in this case is that you know, where there was at least some argument with the, the Masterpiece Cake Shop cases about whether or not the you know, custom cakes were speech and whose speech they were and, and all those questions, that question is, is basically off the table in this case. Everyone agrees this is speech. She actually you know, writes words and puts them on, on the website in addition to all the graphic design work that she does to put the websites together. Um, so there's affirmative speaking that is happening. What Colorado argues is, well, that's fine. Even though this is clearly expression, we agree that strict scrutiny applies as a result. So we're requiring you to be able to, uh, to speak. There's also the element in Colorado where they forbid her from saying on her website, on her own website, why she doesn't do um, same-sex wedding websites. Um, so she's restricted from being able to communicate her rationale or the fact that she doesn't do those websites and also being told that she must do the websites. So it's both a compelled speech and a uh, restriction on speech. Colorado argues, well, you know, even if strict scrutiny applies here, we satisfy it because there's a compelling interest in combating discrimination. And then the, the real key in this case, the least restrictive means of combating discrimination is to require Lori Smith and 303 Creative to provide these websites. Um, so under strict scrutiny analysis, it, it can't just be that well, generally, we have an interest in, in achieving this. It has to be as to the individual who's the complainant, why must they be required? And what Colorado argued um, is that, well, she has a monopoly on her own services. No one, sure, there are other people who would provide these services, but only Lori Smith and only 303 Creative make websites like Lori Smith and 303 Creative. And so the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act requires that um, people have access to Lori Smith and 303 Creative's websites. And so uh, merely the fact that other people would, would make a wedding website isn't a replacement for that. She has a monopoly on her own services. And so the only way they can serve the compelling interest in combating discrimination is by requiring her specifically to provide the service. Tenth Circuit agreed with all that. Tenth Circuit said this is, you know, sort of fully adopted that analysis um, and agreed with a sort of monopoly on your own services, so therefore the government has no choice uh, to serve its compelling interest other than requiring each individual person um, to provide the service. And so that's the case that will go before the court. Um, there were both free exercise and free speech claims uh, in the case. The court only took the free speech claim. So this is one of those cases where you know, I think everyone sort of, a lot of people end up looking at it and think about it as a religious liberty case. But from the perspective of the Supreme Court, this is, is going to be a free speech case. And that's the only, the only question uh, that the court took. I think in, in terms of implications, obviously, uh, all kinds of implications. Hopefully, we finally get a resolution of this question when you have a conflict between a non-discrimination law of some kind. Uh, and, and it goes, by the way, I should say, too, it goes beyond the, you know, the LGBT-related issues. I mean, you've got some of the non-discrimination rules that are being proposed in states also prohibit political discrimination. So a business can't discriminate on the basis of politics. So if you would design a website for Republicans uh, running for Congress, you have to design a website for Democrats running for Congress. 
um, and it's sort of treated on the same level of protected class. And so, you know, there, there are implications, you know, kind of most immediately for the conflict between anti-discrimination laws and the free speech question. Uh, but kind of more broadly, uh, some of you may have heard um, that the Fifth Circuit just decided a, a case uh, last week that is Fundamentally, it's about um, the state of Texas saying as to, um, you know, someone who owns a website uh, and their rights against uh, being compelled to, by a, a state anti-discrimination law, um, their freedom to make determinations about what content they're going to host on their website. The difference, of course, is a, is a significant one. Um, you know, Lori Smith is not Twitter. Um, but... You know, these free speech cases uh, are, are never sort of hermetically sealed into their own little context. And probably the, actually the best example of that is the fact that if you, if you read the arguments from Twitter in the Fifth Circuit case, um, they're citing to Hurley repeatedly. Um, it's, you know, it's Boy Scouts versus Dale and all of those cases that deal with compelled speech, compelled association that the social media platforms are pointing to. You know, this uh, 303 Creative will impact uh, those cases. And so, you know, whether it's, it's determinative or not, that's a, it's a whole other question. There are certainly ways that people can distinguish the two, uh, the two situations, but fundamentally you've got two issues dealing with people who propose to do online speech, government says, but we have a non-discrimination rule and that limits your ability to choose what speech you want to, uh, either offer or, or facilitate. So, uh, I think there will certainly be implications there. Yeah, we'll definitely have to keep an eye for questions during the oral argument about the Fifth Circuit um, in uh, Lori Smith's case. Okay, Anastasia, back to you. Uh, two of the most closely watched cases, I think, of the term are Harvard and UNC. Is this going to be the end of racial preferences in college admissions? Well, stay tuned. I, I think it may be. As you all know, or you should know, the 14th Amendment guarantees to all of us equal protection of the laws. And so what this means, of course, is that the government cannot treat us differently based on race. And because race is so arbitrary, it's something we're born into. We have no choice over it. It means next to nothing. It doesn't determine a person's worth or character. The Supreme Court is extremely skeptical of laws that divide us on this basis, even when they're purportedly trying to help people based on race. This, the Supreme Court has, has taken very disfavorably to these laws. However, it has cut out two exceptions, and one is when the government is trying to remedy prior instances of state-imposed discrimination. In that case, then, of course, the government can take race into account and use it as a way to remedy that discrimination. And the second is, beginning with the Bakke case and culminating in Grutter, it has allowed ra racial preferences in higher education to provide, quote, the benefits that flow from a diverse student body. These are the only two exceptions to the rule of race neutrality in uh, government policymaking. And although Justice O'Connor famously said in her opinion, uh, okaying, greenlighting racial preferences, that we expect 25 years from now the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary, it's 20 years ago and we only really see the use of uh, racial preferences increasing. And so, you know, this case will get at whether that truly is a good reason for the government to act based on race. Because when you think about this, the idea that racial diversity alone provides educational benefits, it invites a lot of questions. What exactly does the court mean by that? Just take a minute to think about what it means to say that racial diversity alone 
is significant because it means that there's something inherently different about having a certain skin color, that that alone makes you different, that race isn't something arbitrary but determinative about you. This is not diversity based on life experiences or ideology or where you grew up or socioeconomic status. It's pure and simple race alone, they say, is important and good. And I think it takes, you know, a lot of people accept that without thinking through the implications of what that really means about what the court's saying about race. And another problem with all of this is that the government tends to define race very crudely. So they define people in broad terms. They say, and they really do say this in some cases, and we'll get to this, that we need more or fewer Asian students. And the term Asian encompasses people of many different countries, religions, languages, cultures, ethnicities. I mean, it encompasses Indian, Pakistani, the Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese. Asians make up 60% of the world's population, and yet the government lumps them together as one crude race and says we need more or less of them because somehow there's something uh, that ties all of these people together in a meaningful way. Um, and the term Hispanic, too, it covers Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans. The government is just not great at defining race. And nevertheless, the court has said that colleges can offer racial preferences for the purpose of these benefits that flow from a diverse student body. It was careful to say that universities cannot engage in outright racial balancing, and it can't impose things like a quota, but it can take race into mind when trying to achieve these benefits. But in practice, we find that schools are engaging in racial balancing. They're not trying to figure out you know, what benefits flow. They're, they're literally balancing based on the population. And that brings us to the Harvard and the UNC case that are up at the Supreme Court this term. It turns out that Harvard has been pursuing balance at the expense of Asian American students because it thinks that under a race-blind system, Asian students would be overrepresented. So what it was found out during litigation is that an African-American applicant in the fourth lowest decile academically has a higher chance of admission than an Asian-American in the top decile. So the evidence showed that race was determinative for at least 45% of all admitted African-American and Hispanic applicants. It was determinative. Race alone was determinative. Um, Harvard treated a student's skin color akin to original scholarship, obtaining near-perfect scores and grades or winning national-level awards. And so this group uh, called Students for Fair Admissions sued both Harvard and uh, UNC under the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause, mm -hmm. saying that this, this can't stand anymore. There's something inherently wrong with this system. We all know racial balancing is not allowed. And frankly, this idea of uh, pursuing racial diversity for, for benefits has no place in our constitutional order. And so we'll see what happens. And I think it's particularly interesting because at PLF, we litigate a lot of these cases in the K through 12 space where, frankly, unspeakable things are happening in K through 12 education where they don't even pretend it's about benefits anymore. They don't even say we're pursuing um, diversity for, for educational benefits. They just pursue outright balancing. And so in the K through 12 educational system, these schools, public schools, are throwing out their admissions criteria and replacing it with things to get a certain balance in the population. They're literally telling, primarily in our cases, Asian students, there's too many of you here. Simply by virtue of fact of being a certain race, we have to get you out and get somebody else in. This is a terrible thing to be um, telling students, and it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think most people expect the Supreme Court to affirm the value of uh, equal treatment, race neutrality equality before the law here, rather than equity, which puts race above 
everything else. So we at PLF have a K through 12 case uh, that's pretty high profile involving a magnet school in Northern Virginia. Uh, and the, uh, the appellate argument was, I think, just last week. So do you have any predictions for um, if, uh, depending on what happens at the appeals court, if the, court would, the Supreme Court would take up that case next? We think, we think it will, and I think it does present a different question than the Harvard case because, again, Harvard is, is, is questioning the diversity rationale, whereas in K-12 education, they've thrown that out the window. They don't even pretend that. They have this equity narrative that, that we need racial balance for its own sake, that group outcome is meaningful and important um, and should be put above things like individual character, merit, uh, choices, characteristics. And so um, it brings up a whole new question for the court. But they are, of course, related in the, in the fact that the word equality, the, the principle of equality is really being, I think, perverted. It's being flipped on its head, um, where it used to mean that race should be not a consideration in government uh, policymaking, and people think it should be one of the primary considerations. And so we will see if we can just reaffirm um, the principle that was meant, I think, by the, the framers of the 14th Amendment and has been the guiding principle of civil rights, uh, the civil rights movement up until now. So, Casey, the separation of powers is near and dear to my heart, and I know yours too. Uh, and there are two extremely exciting cases involving constitutional challenges to unaccountable federal bureaucrats. What, can you tell us about SEC versus Cochran and yeah. FTC? The FTC case? We, we got some excitement in this room about jurisdiction stripping of district courts, right? <laughs> no, these, these are, uh, you know, we've actually had a little bit of a theme here. Um, I don't think I had really completely thought through how much the, the Supreme Court is uh, taking on uh, these jurisdictional questions um, in this term. Because um, even like I didn't even mention in the 303 creative case, part of the issue there is it's a pre-enforcement challenge. So basically it's, you know, there's, there's no sort of, uh, uh, you know, like in Masterpiece Cake Shop you had someone who came into the, to the bakery and, and wanted to be able to, uh, to get the cake. 303 Creative, it was, uh, they said, look, we don't want to have to go through the entire process of creating my website and, you know, and, and starting to serve people only to then be told, aha, we just dinged you with massive fines um, and punishments. And so it, so it was a pre-enforcement challenge, and that's part of you know, Colorado's argument is, you don't know that we're going to apply the Colorado anti-discrimination ordinance to you. Maybe we'll just choose not to. Um, this game that the government likes to play, where you know somehow not not being committed to the rule of law is in their favor. This is a, a another good uh, illustration of it. So basically, Axon Enterprises and SEC versus Cochran. I'll kind of blend these two together um, for the the kind of main point. These are both issues where the people involved are being dragged before administrative law judges uh, that will determine their rights and obligations. In the F FTC case, it's basically a company makes body armor for police. They bought another company. FTC said, this looks like an antitrust problem. Come on over and visit with our staff that we hire, that we share a coffee maker with, and they will determine whether or not we're right or you're right. Uh, that's how the FTC does business. And in the SEC case, it's it's similar. Woman was a, an accountant with a, a small accounting firm. Uh, three years after she had left that accounting firm, the SEC goes after the firm, names her as a defendant. She gets roped up in this process um, before an administrative law judge. Uh, you, you know, there's no opportunity to be able to go to uh, to federal court. In both cases, basically, uh, the the argument is, you know, the process here is the punishment. You're you're forcing us to go through. Uh, potentially years worth of administrative law hearings before a judge 
who's on the team, who's wearing your colors. And we have to go through that process, go through that, uh, that hearing. The agencies both say, yes, but the district court, so they, they want to be able to go to district court and make an argument in district court that these agencies are set up unconstitutionally, that the judges who make these determinations are not accountable to the president. Um, that's in violation of the appointments clause or other due process problems in these cases. They want to be able to make those arguments to a federal district court judge. Federal district court judges have jurisdiction over claims arising under the Constitution, so it all makes sense. Except for that the agencies say, ah, that normally is true. But in our cases, we're special. Um, we're special because there's a, a separate statute that says that appellate courts have jurisdiction um, to hear decisions uh, from the administrative law judges, and that impliedly stripped jurisdiction from federal district courts to be able to hear even these constitutional questions about our agency's structure. So basically, according to the understanding of uh, these agencies, if you've got a complaint where you say, I think your administrative law judges are unconstitutional, you're, the only way you can raise that question is by going to the administrative law judge and saying, I think you are unconstitutional, and I want a decision about your constitutionality, and you've got to go through them first before you can get to a federal court. Um, I, I have a, so these are, I, I think, you know, uh, kind of these complex um, issues that, uh, you know, excite lawyers, but I think there's a, a high likelihood that the court comes down uh, and, and says, look, federal district courts are open uh, to people making these claims, and that will be significant because it will speed the process of actually getting uh, federal courts weighing in on these unconstitutional structures and, uh, and actions taken by uh, federal administrative agencies. Last but not least, Clark, the court has taken an interest in recent years in Native American issues. Uh, this term, they will hear Holland versus Brackeen, I don't know if I'm butchering that name, uh, challenging the constitutionality of a federal law concerning the adoption and foster care placements of Native American children. So tell us about that. This is a really sad and kind of heartrending case that unfortunately I think epitomizes the maxim that there is nothing so broken that the government cannot make it worse. You know, it's no secret that, uh, that the government of this country and, and also uh, state and local governments had a significant role in disintegrating or, or at least uh, imposing significant challenges on Native Americans um, in a variety of ways that have residual effects today. And so the federal statute at issue here is the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was uh, enacted in 1978. It's a fairly complicated statutory scheme, but basically what it reduces down to is whether the federal government has the authority to compel states to change the rubric that they normally apply for deciding um, how to place a child that has been removed from his or her home um, because of problems with the parents or, or is in foster care from some other reason. The general standard uh, is best interest of the child, and that's admittedly a very difficult uh, thing to ascertain for anybody, let alone a judge who, who may be uh, meeting these people for the first time and not have a um, you know, deep sort of personal understanding or connection with what's going on in that household, but we try. Uh, it's the only thing that we can do. And what the ICWA does um, is that it alters that standard and gives tribal governments exclusive jurisdiction um, over child placement decisions um, when the children are on a reservation um, and concurrent but presumptive jurisdiction over foster care placement for any Native American child um, uh, when they don't live on a reservation. So 
To boil that down, basically, if you are um, a child that lives on Indian reservation, or you have enough Native American ancestry, you, by virtue of this federal law, can find yourself subject um, to a, uh, a tribal uh, legal system that can and, and, and often does elevate other interests besides the best interests of the child in making placement decisions, including, um, and this is you know, sort of the uh, policy interest underlying the ICWA, um, a perception um, that there is a need to keep children within the Native American community, even to the point, for example, of preferring a tribe on the other side of the country to the one um, that, that the child in question is actually related to. And there have been instances where um, children have been moved, you know, from, from, let's say, the Great Plains all the way to Florida because, well, you know, Seminole is an Indian tribe too. And, you know, they happen to be in Florida, no big deal. So I think if we look at the law in the best light, uh, I think there was a genuine desire here um, and, and a conviction on the part of at least some of its proponents that uh, Native American children really are better off when courts or uh, you know, tribal tribunals make a real effort to keep them within the community uh, that they grew up in. But I think it's, it's pretty clear in this instance, at least it's clear to me, that it's gone much too far because um, it's one thing to say, you know, look, when, when we're kind of in equilibrium or equipose about where would be the best place uh, for this child to grow up, and, and we allow that decision to be made just kind of at the margin by placing that child within a Native American community. That's one thing, but that's not what's happening here. Um, what's happening here is that children are being torn away um, from loving foster homes, parents that want to adopt them, that have provided a good life for them, and being returned in some cases um, uh, to reservations where they don't know anybody, um, to, to families, extended families with whom they only have the barest connection. And um, I think that in application, it just becomes very difficult to defend um, how this law actually plays out. And the real, the, the primary legal issues in the case are first, um, whether treating children differently by virtue uh, of their membership in, you know, essentially a politically constructed concept of a of, a, of an Indian tribe or, or uh, through their, their sort of ethnic connection um, does or does not implicate equal protection concerns. Uh, I think it's rather clear that they do. Um, there's been sort of a half-hearted effort on the part of the people defending the law to suggest otherwise. I don't think that's going to fly. Um, and then the question will become um, if the government is distinguishing on the basis of race or national origin, as I think clearly it is, um, do those efforts you know, meet the, 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 the standard requirement of satisfying uh, strict scrutiny, which requires a compelling interest um, that is served by a narrowly tailored policy. And I just don't think there's any possible way that you can argue that in this case. There's a subsidiary issue that's interesting as well. Uh, it's a commandeering argument. Essentially, the mechanics of this law require uh, state courts to jump through a lot of federally mandated hoops, um, including things like record keeping and um, making different uh, procedural decisions that would normally apply in those courts. Uh, and I think that Notwithstanding the fact that, that this case generated more than 300 pages of opinions in a badly fractured Fifth Circuit, I think it's pretty straightforward. I don't think it's going to be a close call. Uh, and I, I think it's highly likely that the Supreme Court um, will strike down um, either the law, the statute in its entirety, or at least uh, the, the provisions that are most significantly implicated um, in this case. And I think the bottom line at the end of the day is that um, this federal preference for making decisions on something other than the basis of a state court's 
conception of what are the best interests of the child is not going to be permitted anymore. And I think on balance, notwithstanding the fact that there are some really tragic stories on both sides, um, that is almost certainly likely to be the best thing for the children involved. And uh, I don't think that there's a strong enough argument on the other side to kind of surmount the, the, the court's normal disinclination to allow the government to treat people differently just on the basis of their race or national origin. So before we open it up for audience Q&A, I have a question for the panel. Uh, so Justice Byron, uh, Byron White used to say that every new justice makes it a different court, and we have a new justice, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. So do you think, how do you think she's going to change the dynamic on the court? Anyone feel free to jump in. Well, Stephen Breyer, peace be upon him, is probably the biggest statist on the Supreme Court for the, for the I mean, if you just, and I'm not, like, that's not, I mean, it is disparaging, but it's also empirically, <laughs> it's really the way I meant it. If you were it's to look at all of the justices in the last 20 and 25 years, he's the one that's most likely to side with the government. Um, and that would include, for example, in, in criminal cases. Uh, I think that's one area where uh, we, we can, um, it's reasonable to suppose uh, that uh, Judge Jackson, who clerked uh, for him, uh, will uh, diverge and, and be, you know, perhaps, uh, maybe this is just me sort of uh, dreaming out loud, uh, but come to be sort of, a, a, you know, an opposite of Justice Alito on criminal justice things, so that, you know, you know exactly what Justice Alito is going to say in any given criminal case, and perhaps you can at least presume um, what Judge Jackson will say. I actually doubt that. I think she'll be um, actually more principled. But as messed up as our criminal justice system is, she will have lots and lots of opportunities to say it violated people's constitutional rights. And I think that she will um, embrace that opportunity much more often than her boss. Any other thoughts? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'd add to that is I think that that's right. And it comes from the fact that it, it probably comes to no surprise to anyone here that there's a startling lack of diversity on the bench when it comes to their career background. And of course, we are going to see something new in terms of one of the justices' career background. I mean, most often, I, I am frequently in court where the judges know personally the government attorneys that I'm litigating against because they have worked alongside them. Um, and now we're going to see somebody who, who sued the government for a living. And I have to think that that's going to inform her view of uh, how much deference we should give the government in these cases, how trustworthy they are, and her stance on these issues. So I, I probably agree on, on criminal justice issues. I'm probably a bit more sanguine about um, you know, uh, just how solicitous of, of, of government she's going to be. Um, this I mean, isn't we, my Lochner moment? That's, no, yeah, I'm afraid. That's, uh, I, you know, we, we had a, a case, um, you know, so my colleagues had a case before, before her in early February. It was, I uh, won't bore you the details of the case, but basically the, you know, her questioning evidenced the idea that, you know, but where can you show me that the agency doesn't have this power in the statute? as opposed to, you know, uh, trying to find where had the agency been empowered, um, you know, uh, with the authority that it was trying to exercise, that her approach was to think agencies just have sort of general plenary power, and unless they're told no. And, I, you know, so I, I think there probably is going to be more of that, um, you know, uh, which is not necessarily a, a total shift from the court as it was. But I mean, in fairness, she did come up through the D.C. Circuit, so. Yeah, that's exactly true. So Go forth and regulate. So, you know, I, I think there's, there'll be some of that. Now, I mean, she does have, I mean, the, you know, one of the things that people have pointed out um, is that, you know, for um, a you know, justice that's uh, sort of on the left, she, she has a, a little bit more of a complicated relationship with the, uh, the religious liberty type issues, for example. I mean, she was on the board of a conservative Christian school, will that have an impact? 
um, even if it has the impact of, of causing her to, to basically approach some of those sort of hot button issues with at least somewhat more of an understanding of, okay, well, there are people on both sides of this question uh, that have different views on it, not anyone who disagrees with my point of view on this uh, is necessarily a terrible person uh, sort of perspective. I think that uh, even if the results aren't different uh, and her votes aren't different, I think my hope is that she'll at least approach those cases uh, with a mentality that you know, uh, at least gets you to a more collegial, better uh, process. So. More collegial dissenting opinions than yes, Justice Sotomayor. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST.